Amen. So today is January 31st, and I realize that this next statement I'm getting ready to make is partially a result of me getting older, but there are times that I look back and I wonder, where did 2017 go? Where did it go? And then I find myself wondering maybe some more serious questions than that. Things like, did I take every opportunity that Jesus gave me to tell others about Him in 2017? Did I? I think things like, did I make any difference at all during 2017 for the kingdom of Christ? Did I? I think things like, were others able to see Jesus working in and through me? Were they? I don't know about you, but I frequently think about things like that. Now, I realize that since today is New Year's Eve, later on this evening, many of you are likely to be going to some New Year's Eve celebrations, and you're likely to make a New Year's Eve resolution. And we're going to be talking about resolutions a little later on in the sermon. But as far as where you're going tonight, some of those are likely to be small, intimate settings, And some of them are likely to be on a much grander scale. We're going to be looking at one of the miracles of Jesus this morning. One that he chose to perform in front of several thousand people. In fact, this miracle is the only miracle of Jesus Christ that is recorded in each of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. If you have your copy of your Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to follow along this morning uh, as we proceed through the text. If you don't have your Bibles this morning, that's okay. It will be on the screen, and you can follow along there. But at any rate, if you are physically able to stand this morning, would you stand with me right now to honor the reading of God's Word? John, John 6, chapter 1. Excuse me, John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Verse 12, And when they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. 
So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. You may be seated. Now, obviously, the immediate takeaway when you read that passage or when you hear the passage is that the fact that Jesus fed such a multitude of people with very, very little, and he didn't fill them partially. He didn't feed them partially. He fed them completely, completely. Now, we're going to be getting to the details of that in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to take just a few moments to talk about some things that maybe we don't frequently talk about when we look at this passage. Verse 1, it identifies where Jesus is. It says he has gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And then in uh, verse 2, we see that a large crowd is following him because... They saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So I want to ask you this morning, as we begin, why is it that you follow Jesus? Why do you follow him? Is it because of some excitement that you see somewhere? That you follow him? That you say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? It's, is it because that you've got wound up in some type of emotion or excitement is the reason that you follow Jesus Christ? Or is it because you realize that He is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that He wants to use you for a specific pers- purpose for His kingdom? Why is it that we follow Him this morning? Why? I wonder, do we ever think about that? Why do we follow Jesus? I think that there are so many people that expect that following Jesus is going to be easy. Folks, I'm going to tell you, rarely ever is following Jesus easy. There will be days that you feel absolutely defeated. There will be days that you feel absolutely worthless. But that just emphasizes why we need Jesus so much. So I wonder, why are we following Jesus this morning? And maybe the question for some people, whether it's here in the sanctuary this morning or whether it's somebody that's listening on the radio or watching this sermon on the Internet at some time in the future, perhaps the bigger question really is, are you following Jesus? Are you a true follower of Jesus? And then in verse 3, we see that Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. I want to be sure that we don't miss this this morning because Jesus knows there is a huge crowd of people that are following him right now. But what does he do? He chooses to take his disciples and sit down with them and pour in to his disciples. Discipleship was very, very important to Jesus Christ. If you study the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, you will see that what he did, he placed a large importance on discipleship. We should too. Jesus knew that he was not always going to be on the earth. So he chose a small group of people. And he invested his time in them so that they would be able to continue when he was no longer physically here. I wonder this morning, 
do you realize that you are not going to be on the earth forever? I wonder this morning, who is it that you are preparing for when you are no longer here? Who is it? Now, I'll tell you, discipleship is not easy. It requires an investment. And that investment is not something that you typically write a check for. That investment is you. It's an investment of your time in someone else's life. It is not easy. Many times it's not convenient. But is it worth it? Absolutely. It is worth it. Sometimes I think people are looking at at discipleship as an item that's on a checklist, something that you can do in two or three hours and check it off and be finished with it. That is not how it works. And if we think that's how it works, we are so badly confused. But Jesus, instead of focusing on this large crowd at this moment, he chose to focus on his disciples and pour into them. So then we see in verse 5 that Jesus looks up and he sees that this large crowd is actually coming toward him. So he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? How would you like to have been Philip in that moment? Lucky Philip, why was he the one that got selected? It really, in all overall scheme of things, it really doesn't matter why it was Philip. Jesus called on Philip. We don't often understand why Jesus asked us to do a certain task. Why Jesus asked us a certain question. But that doesn't take away the fact that he does. Anyway, so Jesus asked Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? And then I want to be sure that you get verse 6. He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you, we could devote the entire sermon this morning to this one verse. We could go very, very deep in this one verse. I'm not going to do that this morning because we do not have time. But I want you to hear this. If you ever wonder, as a follower of Christ, will Jesus ever test me? Will Jesus ever test me? I want you to write down John 6, 6, because the answer is yes. Jesus will test you. Jesus tests his followers, his true followers, just like he does here in John 6, 6. Now I want you to pay attention to verse 7. What we, the scene we have here, Jesus has asked Philip a very direct question. Where? Where are we going to buy bread to feed these people? But notice how Philip answers him. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Jesus has asked a very direct question. Where are we going to buy bread? Philip responds with an estimate of how expensive it's going to be. Jesus was not interested in the, in the cost, in the expense of that. Because you know why? Jesus paid the cost. Jesus paid the price in full when He went to that cross and died for you and me on Calvary. He paid the price in full that day. And Jesus knows that He is the bread of life. I wonder if Philip knew that that day. 
Do you think Philip knew that I'm look, I'm in the presence of the man who is the bread of life. He is the one who can provide. But again, Philip wasn't getting it at this point. He answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. And this was expensive. And that day, a denarius was typically equated to one day's work. So Philip is saying, hey, I could work 200 days and it wouldn't be enough for these people to each get a little. And I want you to know this morning, Jesus doesn't just want you to have a little of him. He wants you to have all of him. I think there are so many people today, they try to live their life with Jesus as if they only want just enough Jesus to somehow say they're saved. But they have absolutely no intention of leaving their life of sin. And I want you to know this morning, that is not what a relationship with Jesus Christ is. That is not it. And if you think it is, if that's the way you live your life, the enemy has deceived you. And then we see in verse 8 that Andrew speaks up. He's been observing the crowd. And he says that there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But then he immediately Puts a disclaimer on it. But what are they for so many? What are they? How could five barley loaves and two fish even come close to feeding this crowd? How could they do it? You know, I want to ask you this morning, do you think it's significant that it was a boy that showed up in this crowd with five barley loaves and two fish? I do. And I'll tell you why. Let's suppose instead of a boy... It had been a professional caterer that had a food stand set up there. Maybe they knew that there were several thousand people there and it was an opportunity to make some money. If there was a caterer in the group that had loaves and fishes, somebody could have easily drawn the conclusion, well, they're professionals. They were prepared to feed that crowd. But it wasn't a caterer. It was a boy with five loaves and two fish. How could that possibly feed this crowd? And then Jesus gives the command, have the people sit down. Do you ever stop to think how difficult that would have been under these circumstances? We have got 5,000 hungry men that we're going to see here in just a minute. 5,000 hungry men. The crowd that day was likely much bigger than that due to the women and children that would have been there. Probably more like seven to 10,000 people that were there in this crowd. But Jesus says, have these men to sit down, 5,000 of them. Now, keep in mind, they're hungry men. They're outside. There is no sound system. How are you going to get them to sit down? It seems impossible, doesn't it? But you add again, once again, nothing is impossible with Jesus. When Jesus speaks, things happen. And they sit down. And then we see in verse 11 that Jesus takes the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. I want to be sure that you don't miss that either. I wonder why Jesus stopped and gave thanks there. Do you think maybe he was giving us an indication of how important it is for us to do that? 
Now, I believe Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do, just like one of the earlier verses in this passage said. He knew that he was going to take these loaves and fishes and multiply them. But yet, he still stopped and blessed that before he did anything. It's an, it's an example that we should do the exact same thing. So then after he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. You see, they didn't just get a little. They did not just get a little. They got as much as they wanted. And then in verse 12, when the disciples had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And you might wonder, so why would he do that? Why would he tell them to gather up the leftover fragments? I really think it's probably for multiple reasons, but I believe two of them are. You might be thinking, like, for instance, since it's bread, wouldn't the elements of nature just take care of that? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't the elements of nature just consume bread over a time? Of course it would. But I think Jesus is giving us an indication here that we are not supposed to leave his property in the mess. We are not supposed to leave something that he gives us in a mess. We're supposed to clean it up. And then the second thing I believe that he did this, the reason he did this, he wanted his disciples to be able to see with their eyes that he had provided. Notice it's the disciples he's asking to pick up. He didn't choose 12 people from the crowd. He chose his disciples. And they went and filled up 12 baskets with the fragments of the loaves by those who had eaten. Quite a miracle. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And I want to ask you again this morning, so why? Why do you follow Jesus? Do you require a sign? Do you require a miracle before you're going to truly follow Jesus? I hope not. Because again, if that's what we're requiring, if that's what we're looking for, Perhaps the question is, are we truly following Jesus in the first place? Now again, today's December 31st. And I want to talk just a little while about resolutions right now. In general, I have never been a big fan of New Year's resolutions. And I'll tell you why. I really think for the most part, most people have absolutely no intention of keeping their New Year's resolution. None. Because it's something that is so extreme, there's no way you could keep it. So extreme that there is no way that you could keep it. You set yourself up to fail, and then you get discouraged. And then maybe the resolution doesn't even last but one or two days. Maybe one or two weeks, one or two months maybe. And then it's life as usual. I want to encourage you this morning. As you think about making a resolution for 2018... I want you to first look upward. And then I want you to look inward. What is it that Jesus is wanting you to do? You know, I think for some of you, 
it's going to require making a commitment that you are going to spend time with Jesus. Serious time with Jesus every day in a quiet time where you go somewhere away from your phone, away from TV, away from any distraction, and you seek the Lord, you pray, and you wait until He speaks to you. Is that something that can be done in five minutes a day? Absolutely not. But if you are serious about your relationship with Jesus, you'll be willing to do it. I believe for some of you, it's going to mean asking Jesus, who is it that you want me to pour myself into in 2018? Realizing that it's a commitment of your time. Realizing that it's going to take time, not once, not twice, but many times over this next year. Is it worth it? Absolutely, it is worth it. For others of you, I believe it's going to mean you come into the realization that God's calling you to be His hands and feet. No matter what that may look like for you and your family. No matter what that may mean. And as you're setting your resolutions, I have ten questions that I want you to consider. Now, every one of these were taken from an article uh, written by a man named Don Whitney. And as it happened, Brother Blake knew sort of the direction of my sermon, and he saw this article on, on Friday, I think it was, of this week, and he emailed that to me and he said, this reminded me of your sermon. And as I read it, I thought, this is something I want to share with you. Number one, again, these are all things, questions to consider for 2018. What's one thing you could do this year to increase your enjoyment of God? One thing. Number two, what is the most humanly impossible thing you will ask God to do this year? Realizing that with Christ, all things are possible. So what's the most humanly impossible thing you will ask God to do this year? Number three, what's the single most important thing you could do to improve the quality of your family life this year. Now, this is a big one. On Friday, I think it was, I turned on Caleb, and the moment that I turned it on, they were doing an interview. I don't even know who it was with, except it was a member of a contemporary Christian group that had been touring many, many dates a year. And they had come to the realization by doing that, even though they were serving the Lord, they were spending basically zero time with their families. None. And so they prayed to see what God's will was. And it looked drastically different maybe than what they wanted. Because you have to realize for a musician, for a singer on a professional level, a concert equals money. This group cut the number of concerts in half that they did. Which, you know, it doesn't take a brilliant mathematician to realize their income immediately would be cut in half. But what happened as a result, their relationships with their wives strengthened. They learned who their children were. Their family lives strengthened. 
And then he said a statement at the end of the interview that really got my attention. He said that God had enforced to them throughout this process that God's not necessarily interested in our, in our success. But what he wants from you is surrender. He wants you to surrender completely to him. He wants your obedience. Number four, in which spiritual discipline do you most want to make progress this year? And what will you do about it? Number five, what is the single biggest time waster in your life? And again, what will you do about it this year? Number six, what's the most helpful new way that you could strengthen your church? Yes, you. You as a member, as an attender. What is the most helpful new way that you could strengthen your church? Everybody has a part. And I'll tell you for number six, ways to strengthen the church are not gossip. They're not backbiting. They're not always having to get our individual ways. That's not ways to strengthen a church. That's ways to tear a church completely apart. Number seven. This was a big one for me. Many of you have heard me say this before. In fact, I've said it from the pulpit. For whose salvation will you pray most fervently this year? Whose? You've heard me say before, we are not seeing nearly enough people saved here. Nowhere near the number of people saved as we should be seeing here. Who are we praying fervently that they will be saved? Who is it? You know, God's Word tells us we have not because we ask not. Are we asking Jesus to save people? Not in a 30-second prayer, Lord, save the world, save the lost. That is not what I'm talking about. I am talking about who is on your mind personally that you are willing to continually lift up to Jesus in order for them to be saved. Who is it? I think if we get serious about asking Jesus to save people, I think He will. But we've got to be serious. We've got to be to the point where we are willing to adjust our schedules, where we are willing to lose sleep praying for people. Number eight, what's the most important way you will, by God's grace, try to make this year different from last year? Number nine, what one thing could you do to improve your prayer life this year? And then number ten, What single thing that you plan to do this year will matter most in ten years? And then in eternity. And folks, this is a big one. This is such a big one. Do you realize that the decisions you make, they don't just affect you. They don't. They affect everyone after you. I've had conversations with people who have engaged in some type of sinful practice. And when I try to confront that, they will say, what difference does it make? It only affects me. It only affects me. That is so false. 
so false. It affects you and everybody after you. I heard, um, I actually read something yesterday. I've actually, I've actually spent quite a bit of time studying the life of Joseph. But I read something yesterday that I had never put together. And I want to share that with you this morning. Now, I realize we've got children in the sanctuary this morning, and I am not going to go into detail with this. But if you are even just a little bit familiar with the life of Joseph, you'll know what I'm talking about. You know, Joseph found himself in the house with Potiphar's wife. And she she gave him a proposal. And he ran out of the house. He had nothing to do with it. But let's suppose for just a minute he used the same line of reasoning as so many people use today. Well, God allowed me to be in this house. He allowed me to be in that house. So therefore, it must be God's will for me to engage in this sin. Do you realize there are so many people today that try to blame God for them engaging in a sinful practice? God will never set you up to do that. He will never, you can, you can rest assured, it is not His will for you to be involved in any sinful practice. But let's suppose for just a minute that Joseph did give in. Now, the, the short-term effect of that would have been he would not have been put in prison under false allegations. But you know what the long-term allegations of that would have been? The long-term implications of that would have been? Two nations... Two nations would have been virtually wiped off the face of the earth because they would have starved to death due to the famine. So look at what the effect of that sin would have had. It does not just affect you. It affects everybody after you. So we often hear this phrase, New Year, New You. New Year, New You. Big deal, right? It can be. It can be a huge deal. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. I'm going to tell you, I believe there's people in this room this morning that the new needs to come to. The new needs to come right now. It can happen today. I believe there's people here this morning that have realized maybe for the first time that you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I want you to know I would love to introduce you to Him today. I want you to know that one day your life is going to end and you will stand before Jesus Christ face to face. And you will either hear, welcome to heaven, or you're going to hear, depart from me. I have never known you. Once you go to hell, folks, it is eternal. It will never end. It's not funny. It will not be funny on that day. Don't take a chance of your salvation. Don't take a chance on that. It is too serious business. I believe there's others of you this morning that you need to just come forward and make a commitment that 2018, it's going to be different. It's going to look different for me. I am going to pray for people like I have never prayed for them before. I am going to honor Jesus in all my decisions. I think there's decisions that need to be made here today. Perhaps the the bigger question is, will, will we allow that to happen? 
Will we allow that to happen? Or are we too busy? I hope that we don't use the I'm too busy as an excuse because I want to remind you that Jesus can change your schedule in the blink of an eye. You know, little did I know that six years ago tomorrow when I walked in here thinking that I was, had been sent to play the piano, how my life was going to change. Am I glad it did? Absolutely I am. But it probably wouldn't happen had I not allowed it to. I wonder, will you let Jesus work in your life? And will you let him do it today? Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you so much for this day that you've made. Lord, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word. Lord, I pray that the things that have been shared this morning, Lord, I pray that you will keep them alive and active in people's hearts. Lord, I pray that you will search this sanctuary this morning. And Lord, I pray that if there are people who are here this morning that need to make decisions, Lord, I pray that they will be compelled to come forward and surrender all this morning. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.